shows on KCNR are those of the hosts, guests, and callers only, and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of KCNR Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Patricia Bay. You're tuning in to Therapy in a Nutshell here on KCNR 96.5 FM, 1460 AM, your talk radio. This is Dr. Patty, and we're going to be talking about secondary traumatic stress disorder. It's also been called many other things, but it's the idea that people who aren't the original people who are traumatized, who either are the first responders or the helpers or the therapists or the social workers, uh, who listen to the stories of trauma are often traumatized by the secondary trauma of being involved with it. Um, By the end of the show, you're going to really understand what I mean by it. Uh, It's also sometimes called um, caregiver fatigue. It's called compassion fatigue. Sometimes it's just seen as burnout, although that's a little different. But what I want you to do is understand what this is so that if you have been developing this secondary stress disorder, that you recognize it and you begin to get some help for it because it can be debilitating. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about my story with this. Um, I've been in private practice as a therapist for 34 years. And I, for the first five years of my career, I did sexual abuse investigation with Children's Protective Services. Then I became known um, as an expert witness in sexual abuse and assault and molest and been called to many different states to testify as an expert witness in this. So I have dealt with hundreds of victims, hundreds and hundreds of victims of sexual assault and rape and molest. And some of their stories, quite obviously, are horrendous, just horrendous. So when I look to see, do I have secondary traumatic stress disorder, I would tell you, no, I don't. But I can tell you over 34 years, there are a handful of cases that were so incredibly horrendous that I had to work to not think about them in my off hours, not dream about them, um, not feel this incredible wound inside of me when I would think of the trauma that these people endured. That is the secondary traumatic stress disorder that has potential to accumulate. And let me talk to you about what I mean by accumulate. I see people, I see, um, I treat a lot of first responders, firefighters, police officers, um, paramedics. I have treated a lot of military over the years. And I see people who have a traumatic incident that stresses them, okay? So they end up sometimes with post-traumatic stress disorder. Sometimes it's just a traumatic incident that's been very stressful. And I kind of look at that as a chink in their armor, and their armor gets weakened. So these military people that went back for tour after tour in Afghanistan and Iraq or Vietnam um, when they were there as young, very young boys practically, the chinks in their armor made them more vulnerable and less resilient to future trauma. So when we look at 
first responders or we look at psychologists or therapists or um, social workers, people dealing with victims of trauma, where they come from, whether they're in the military prior to their now first responder service or they were abused as children or they have their own molest or rape instances, those put shakes in their armor so that they are less resilient at times. And, and not everybody. Some people are extremely resilient. That's what I would say about their personalities. They've been through more than the average bear, and they are still emotionally strong. So when someone's had a bunch of chinks in their armor that make them more vulnerable to trauma and less resilient to their own traumas, it also can make them less resilient to handling other people's trauma. So what ends up happening is the secondary stress reaction for serving professionals is real. And, and, and what we're doing now in this day and age is we're trying to break what was former, formerly a code of silence. Uh, I remember when I was doing sexual abuse investigation at Children's Protective Services, nobody was expected to come back from a perfectly horrendous call and be upset. We were to be strong and kind of silent about it. And when we talked about it, we were very clinical and matter-of-fact. Nobody was sitting in the corner crying, going, oh, my gosh, it was horrific. It was horrible. I can't believe I saw that. I can't believe I witnessed what was going on in the aftermath, the emergency room. Nobody was expected to speak about it, really, at at least not in terms of their own trauma, only in terms of how they handled the case. I've noticed the same thing with police officers, firefighters, um, emergency personnel. There is this code of silence that you can talk about what happened. You can even sometimes joke about what happened. Uh, You can be ticked off like you can talk about what you want to do to the offender or something like that in in angry kind of terms. But to feel vulnerable and sad and horrified and really upset has not been part of the typical response package for people that are in these jobs. So now, as we even begin to have a term called secondary traumatic stress disorder, we are giving permission to helping professionals and first responders and military to be able to say how they feel. And and the interesting thing is you can't deal with how you feel about it right then and there while you are helping the trauma victim. But you can hopefully have permission to talk about it later when it's all done. So it's important that everybody understand that there is such a thing as secondary traumatic stress, and sometimes it's called compassion fatigue for a reason, okay? Just like in post-traumatic stress disorder, there are symptoms of intrusion where you're thinking about something else and all of a sudden a visual or a thought or a memory or your client or your person talking about what happened intrudes on your own thinking. There's avoidance. You want to avoid uh, movies that have anything to do with stuff like that. You want to avoid talking about it. Um, you don't want people asking you questions about the worst case you've ever had at work. They, they tend to want to ask questions like that. So there's avoidance of wanting to think about it, feel about it, or talk about it. And then there are arousal 
sort of issues with the post-traumatic stress. They arousal issues like um, dreams and nightmares, uh, feeling upset and anxious, um, feeling heightened in your feelings, whether it's uh, like, I don't want to think about that. Um, So there's a heightened kind of emotional response. So if you are dealing with secondary traumatic stress disorder or you're dealing with caregiver kind of burnout or compassion fatigue, look to see if you have intrusive thoughts, avoidance behaviors, or arousal behaviors where these things are jerking you around. Things you're remembering, things that you helped with, people that you helped. So one of the ways that we avoid secondary traumatic stress disorder, and let me be clear about that, not necessarily avoid it happening to you, but avoid thinking about it, is we feel like as long as we're helping, we flip into a different box in our head. So we're we have our therapist hat on, or we are on duty as a police officer, or we are doing our military orders. As long as you are in that work mode, whatever that is, that helping mode, that work mode, you feel like you flip into a different place in your head. What happens with secondary traumatic, or secondary traumatic stress disorder is you get jerked out of that workplace in your head and you become human for a moment. So we're going to go to break, and when we come back, I want to give you some more examples of how secondary traumatic stress disorder happens. I want you to really understand it. And by the end of this show, I want to tell you how you can help yourself if you deal with a difficult job. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. I love this music. It's Randy McGinnis, Native American flutist, who is an incredible musician. Native American flutist has won countless awards, um, Lifetime Achievement Awards, Native American Flutist of the Year for Native American Music Awards. He's just incredible. He's played all over the world. You can listen to his music um, on Spotify, Pandora, iTunes, CD Baby. You can go to his website, randymcginnis.com. Randy was also Special Forces for many, many years and taught it for many years and has an incredible service to this country, and we thank him for all of that. So we're talking about secondary traumatic stress disorder, also known as compassion fatigue, uh, sometimes known as burnout. Um, But we're talking about the vicarious trauma that people get when they deal with those who are severely traumatized, who are the primary trauma recipients. So let me give you an example of a military sort of secondary trauma. And this was actually told to me by a military person. Turned around and saw that his best buddy, who was over in Afghanistan with him, was killed. Turned around, figured out he was dead and had to go into military mode and what he had been taught was check for life if no life take weapons and ammunition or disable the weapon take the firing pin out so the reason they were taught that and the reason he taught that later as he advanced in rank 
was he said, when something horrendous has happened, like your best friend's been killed right there behind you, you have to have something to do so that you don't just stand there and stare. You don't go into shock. And your training is what kicks into gear. And this is what happens also with first responders. When they see something horrendous, they are taught to run to, not away. They are taught to react and not stand there and suck in the trauma and the horrific scene. So he said, in the military, what we teach our guys, our, our, our fellow military people, is when your comrade is shot or killed or whatever, this is what you do. And that is, you know, put into your head so that you have a response to do so that you don't become at risk. And that's what's really important. And it is what happens when you work for Children's Protective Services, when you're a therapist dealing with trauma victims, when you're a social worker dealing with abused children, police officer, firefighter, emergency personnel, um, emergency room doctors. I've seen several emergency room doctors in therapy, and it was for secondary traumatic stress disorder. Now, let me give you an example of that. You would think that an emergency room doctor or EMTs, police officers, firefighters, would the secondary traumatic response that they might get is from seeing, say, a catastrophic amputation or um, somebody who was horrifically killed in a car accident. It's interesting. The ones they talk about in therapy are not necessarily what general population would say, oh, that must have been horrible for you. It was when they couldn't save a child or when a battered woman uh, won't say how she was hurt, and you know you can tell that she was beat up, but she won't say and she won't get help and she won't let anybody help her. Those are the ones that haunt them. They're not necessarily what anybody else might put their finger on. And one of the reasons I'm telling you that is sometimes the things that haunt therapists are not the worst cases they've ever worked. They are the cases where they couldn't help or the the victim or the person they were treating was taken away and they couldn't finish helping. Um, So don't assume that just because you've had some milder traumatic cases that you've been helping with and they have haunted you, it doesn't necessarily have to do with just how bad that case was for the primary traumatized person. And I'm saying that because it we have to recognize that even if you have something that's bothering you that's not as big as somebody else's, you get to have help for it. Like I always tell people that your broken pinky gets to be painful for you just like somebody else's broken leg. And this is what happens with secondary traumatic stress disorder. And I also want you to remember that this idea that trauma can be cumulative. Secondary stress can be cumulative as well because the little things that you've experienced add up over time. Now, in my 34 years of private practice and my years before that, doing sexual abuse investigation and um, all of that at Children's Protective Services, there have been a number of instances that have bothered me. But I've always tried hard to work them through and to really understand them and to process them and feel them. And at the end of the show, we're going to get into the, the last segment. How do you help yourself? But recognizing right now that even if you have a series of smaller cumulative sort of things that have added up for you, 
That doesn't mean that you're weak. It just means you've been helping probably for a long time. So there are interesting ways that secondary trauma can hit a helping professional. Let me give you an example with our recent big, huge fires here in Northern California. The car fire was humongous, and there was a lot of devastation. A lot of people lost their homes. There was loss of life in here. So many of the therapists that treat first responders had to listen to the horrendous tales from the first responders that traumatized them. And I, I treat many firefighters and police officers. So I heard a lot of the gory details of some of the horrific things from the car fire. And I heard them over and over again. And I heard them from different people who had different perspectives on these horrific sort of events. And I had to work really hard at letting some of those images in my head go. It's, it's one of the prices you pay for being a very visual person, too, because... They would, teach, they would tell me these stories, and I'd get a visual on it, which, you know, I'd have a little movie playing in my head. So that's a way that secondary trauma can happen to you. And a couple of them were pretty horrific, and I'd find myself later at home, when things, like when things would get quiet, especially when you get in bed, lights are out, it's all quiet, you're trying to go to sleep, and all of a sudden one of those intrusive visuals comes up, and you're like, oh, I hate thinking about that. And you try to shove it out. So that's an example of secondary trauma. Now, let's say that I just pretended that, oh, I'm, I'm fine. It didn't happen to me. I just heard the story about it. And I push it away and I go to that code of silence where I'm trying to let it go. That is not helpful. I have to acknowledge that hearing those horrific stories from many different people and hearing the horrendously gory details about them, was important for those traumatized first responders to be able to get it out. But I have to be careful to try not to be the vessel that sucks that in. And some of it seeps in even when you're really good at not sucking it in. So one of the things I teach my interns all the time is I teach them you have to be able to recognize when you're having trouble keeping your distance from something. One of the ways that I have done it my whole career is I, I remind myself that that person that is, was horrifically hurt is not me. My role is to help them. So I, I work really pretty well at it, and I learned it when I was at Children's Protective Services doing the sexual abuse investigation, that I would put my helper hat on, I'd put my therapeutic hat on, and I'd recognize I was helping. I was supposed to be allowing them to experience what they experienced without taking it from them. I want you to picture that they're holding a big ball in their hand, and I don't want to run over and grab the ball and make the ball mine. It's theirs. They're holding it. I'm not going to rob them from it. It's their experience. Even if it's a horrific experience, I can't take it from them. So I had to let them experience it, talk about it, say how it's affecting them, and take them through that. And at the same time, in my head, I'm saying, that's their experience. It is not mine. My job is to help. Secondary traumatic stress disorder happens when some of that seeps in, regardless of how well you do, 
at keeping a professional distance, recognizing it's not yours, you still can't help but feel badly. And I'll tell you where secondary stress traumatic um, secondary trauma happens a lot, and that is with things dealing with children. When you have a client who is a grieving mother who lost their child, and invariably she has a child the same age as yours. I see that all the time. I, I'm a therapist who counsels other therapists a lot. So it is not surprising that somebody says, why do I keep getting traumatized mothers with young children? Because it's harder for you to distance when a child's the same age as yours and they're grieving the loss of their child. So recognize that those are more vulnerable instances for you. They're also incredibly empathetic moments. As a mother of a young child, and now you're the mother or the therapist of a grieving mother who lost a child at similar age to yours, that is an extremely empathetic opportunity, and that can be beautiful therapy. But it can also be the difficulty in you keeping some professional distance. So recognizing the more vulnerable aspects for you are important for you recognizing if you do have secondary traumatic stress disorder or if you are vulnerable to it. So let's, let's look at the idea that secondary traumatic stress disorder can also be compassion fatigue. It's another way of saying it, but that secret dark cloud that creeps in and accumulates in your psyche, you can only see it with your special glasses. You don't want others to see it. Your life looks okay, and you want to make sure others don't see how you feel. And you don't want to look damaged or weak. And you especially don't want your peers to see that you feel damaged or weak. Those are some of the things that happen with compassion fatigue. It just kind of creeps over you like a dark cloud. And you've been good at your job, you've got a lot of compassion, you've helped a lot of people. But as compassion fatigue sets in, sometimes you begin to get a little bit indifferent. You're tired. You don't want to do these cases anymore. You don't have much energy for them. You tend to lose some of your compassion and your empathy. There's a part of your brain going, oh, that's nothing. You should have heard the story I heard the other day. And you start to compare someone's broken pinky to someone else's broken leg, to use that metaphor. That's what can happen with compassion fatigue. And people tend to hide it because they don't like how they're thinking in their head. So look for these things in yourself, that you're feeling kind of exhausted and tired. You're feeling burned out on this type of case. Um, you start to have maybe some physical ailments, headaches, stomach aches, um, putting your stress in your gut, um, excessive heartburn, acid reflux. Those are things that we could look at as part of compassion fatigue. All right, we're going to go to break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this so you really recognize it. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. This is Dr. Patty, and we're talking about secondary traumatic stress disorder, sometimes called compassion fatigue. I want to give you some statements that people have made regarding how they feel about this. They talk about feeling emotionally numb, that 
they get stressed or anxious, um, heart pounding, kind of, you know, anxiety sort of response when they think about heading to work to see a particularly traumatized client. Um, they find themselves reliving some of the trauma of their clients, feeling really badly for them, and sometimes even picturing or thinking about what that person went through. And then sometimes losing their professional distance where they're thinking, what if that was me? What if I lost my child? What if there was that horrible fire and I had to deal with it? And they start to put themselves in that person's place. They tend to have trouble sleeping. They often feel hopeless and discouraged about the future. Um, thinking about their work and reminders of their work and being asked about their work upsets them inside, even if they try really hard not to show it. And then they start to feel like they're losing interest of people around them. They're kind of exhausted. They don't want to hear emotional stories. Um, like For myself, I think, over 34 years, there's times there's movies I don't watch that I go, nah, that feels like work. I don't want to watch that. It's like going to work. And it's not that I don't like being at work, but to watch a movie, to enjoy it, is not about doing what I do at work. Um, they can feel tired, less active, trouble concentrating. Then sometimes they start avoiding people and places and uh, talking about difficult stuff. Um, they can have disturbing dreams and just the, the, the stress reactions, the anxiety, the feeling annoyed and irritable, expecting bad things to happen. Sometimes when a helping professional has heard so many horrific stories, they worry that could happen to their own children. Uh, how many police officers do you know that probably worry about their own family getting in a car wreck or firefighters who've seen so many car wrecks that they know what can happen? So those are things that can weigh on you and create stress, secondary stress disorder in you, which is important for you to know. So why, why are you at risk? Remember, some of the things that makes you more at risk for secondary stress disorder is your own personal history. Trauma as a child, um, sexual assaults that you experienced, and now you're dealing with sexual assault victims. Um, traumas that you've had put some chinks in your armor and can make you less resilient. So how do we prevent secondary stress disorder? One of the biggest things is education. You need to understand that this can happen. So, like, one of the things I teach my interns is how to make sure that it's, you're recognizing it's their trauma, not yours, but also that you need to recognize when something is weighing on you or you're having trouble processing it or you're finding it intrusive into your own thoughts and your own dreams and your own issues at home or whatever, that you get some supervision regarding it. Now, if you're an intern, you go to your supervisor, right? If you're working in an agency, hopefully you go to your supervisor. In this day and age, people, supervisors are more aware of this phenomenon than they definitely were 30 years ago when I was at CPS. They, we didn't talk about it. And if you did, you would probably be considered as weak. But now it's more open. So you go to your supervisor, you ask for um, therapeutic help, you ask to staff a case, um, you get it out. So you don't keep it inside buried, you talk about it. Um, ongoing skills training where you are 
taking workshops on burnout or compassion fatigue or stress disorder stuff or even PTSD is going to help you put language and words to what you're experiencing. Um, Forming workplace care groups. There's a thing called CISD, Critical Incident Stress Debriefing, and it is powerful. I have been trained in CISD and have done CISD um, groups for first responders. And the CISDs that I saw that were most horrific were the ones involving children that had either been killed or maimed or whatever. Those those hurt first responders and therapists and everything and social workers more than anything else as the things involving children. But CISD is a way of not compartmentalizing the trauma that you have from watching the trauma that others have gone through. That's a secondary trauma. So CISD is a way of talking about it and getting it out. So it's, it's probably the best coping skill that I see for people that deal with trauma victims. Don't hold it inside. Even if you have no one to talk to because you don't feel like it's safe at your workplace, um, getting into therapy in this day and age, you can get telehealth therapy really easy, easily. Um, but write it out. Write it out, burn it, offer it as a prayer up to God. Do whatever you need to do with the writing that you did. But it's a way of not storing it in your gut, in your heart, in your mind, and putting it out on paper. So staffing it, care groups, CISD, critical and stress debriefing. Um, and then look for the balance in your caseload, right? Um, for example, if you are a first responder, sometimes you might, want to not just be going on all the horrific calls. You might want to be doing some training or some union work or uh, going and being a a police officer talking at the schools about prevention. There might be some balance to your work that you can do that doesn't leave you just doing horrific calls. Um, So balancing your caseload is really important. If you're a therapist in private practice, be cognizant of how many trauma cases you're doing. One of the things I've dealt with multiple personality disorder, which is now called disassociative identity disorder for years. And after a while, it I said, look, I've only got one DID on my caseload at a time, one multiple personality. Because DID is what happens when there's severe trauma in a child's, usually between ages two and six. And so I was privy to horrendous trauma stories from these people and they were severely damaged and so I made it a rule that I didn't have more than one of my caseload at a time so other therapists can do that if if you're treating first responders or military or things like that and you can try to limit how many horrendous traumatic victims that you have on your caseload that's great sometimes you cannot and I understand that. I'm, some of you are scoffing and going, yeah, like I get to choose. Flex time your scheduling if you can. If you have been particularly exhausted and you're not sleeping and you can change your caseload to start a bit, little bit later in the morning rather than pushing yourself so that you can get a little more sleep, trying not to be exhausted is important. So recognizing where the stress is coming from, recognizing what your background brings to that stress that makes it either worse or makes you particularly vulnerable to certain type of cases is really important. 
And then recognizing when cases are intruding on your time, whether it's your thought time, your peace of mind, your family time, your fears and worries about your own family, your own children, your own parents, um, whatever. Noticing your own psyche and what you're ruminating about is a huge clue as to whether you're getting compassion fatigue or secondary traumatic stress. So you have to be aware. And you can't do that old code of silence that we used to do for so many years of just sucking it up, being strong, looking like nothing ever bothers you. And I, and I get it that those of us that work with trauma all the time, there's a whole lot that doesn't bother us that we are good at putting in the box and dealing with. It's the ones that seep in that take you by surprise and that all of a sudden you find yourself really upset about. So know that. It's about recognizing what you need and helping yourself. There are some new tools available where therapists can take an online test to see if they have secondary stress. Um, So there's studies being done on it now. There's inventories that you can go through and check whether this seldom happens to you or it happens to you often in terms of all the symptoms of secondary stress. And those are really cool things to have. If you're supervising interns, maybe sometimes have your interns take that test. If you are a supervisor in an agency, recognize that your line staff may be getting traumatized. It's What I have found over the years is it's very hard to get some of the militaristic type of agencies on board with this kind of thinking. For starters, many of our first responders, firefighters and police officers, come from the military. So they have that military background, which definitely has that code of silence and that suck it up mentality and, you know, you're not affected by anything. But you try to get some of these agencies to recognize that the incidence of stress Um, disability claims in police officers and firefighters is way less when their first responders get critical incident stress debriefing. When they are allowed to accumulate their own trauma on the traumas that they deal with, and it starts to put chinks in their armor, and their resiliency gets less and less, over time you've got somebody with uh, like a 30-year career and every, everyone I've dealt with that has long-term career firefighting and police officers and EMTs can give you 20 cases that were horrendous that have haunted them. Those accumulate, and at some point, they break. So trying to get through to agencies to say, look, help your people before they break in terms of secondary stress is really important, very important. So we're going to go to break. And... I'm going to give you some very specific things to do to help yourself. So we'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. This is Dr. Patty, and we're talking about secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue. I want to talk to you about how to help yourself. And I want you to recognize that the very first way to help yourself is to recognize that you're stressing, that your compassion is growing tired and weak. That's the very first thing. And I have permission to share a story with you. 
Um, Randy McGinnis, was, uh, who's our Native American flute player for this show, was Special Forces and taught it for a long time and was very uh, active for our country. And he did oh, probably almost 100 deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. He was there a lot for many years. Um, and what he told me was in his some of his horrendous Special Forces stuff, I said to him, why do you not have PTSD now? And he said, because I've always worked at it in my head. One of the things he did when he came home, he's a Cherokee Native American and speaks fluent Cherokee and is very spiritual. He's a beautiful spirituality. Listening to him do Cherokee prayers is just stunningly gorgeous. But he said when he would come home from deployment, he would meet with the medicine man, the holy man of his tribe, and he would do a cleansing ritual. He would do a sweat lodge. And in the cleansing ritual, he would ceremoniously burn his warrior feathers. Warrior Cherokee Native Americans have their eagle feathers, their warrior feathers. And when they return from war to the tribe, they go back to being regular people, so to say. They step out of warrior mode and go back into being a man mode, not a warrior man. So when he would come home from battle, he would do a cleansing, do a sweat lodge, burn his warrior feathers, and give them back to the Creator. And he said that was his message to his own psyche. You are not at war any longer. Take what you brought home from war and give it back to the Creator. It is not yours to hold. So what he's talking about is there is a ritual that you can devise for yourself to say the day is done, the trauma stays here at work. When I worked for Children's Protective Services, somehow I stumbled on having a closing ritual from work. I remember I'd organize my files. I'd do a to-do list for when I'd come in the next work day. I'd hang my sweater up, my work sweater that I had, and I would close everything down. And everything was neat and put away like it should be, so that when I would walk in the next day, I would be starting fresh. And I, I used to think of it as my closing ritual. And when I was getting ready to leave for the day, I'd say, okay, I'm going to do my closing ritual. And I would do that. And it was my signal to my own psyche. I am leaving whatever I dealt with here, and sometimes it was horrendous stuff. I'm leaving it here at work. I am not taking it home with me. It was a similar type of thing, only not as profound as Randy McGinnis's sweat lodge of giving up his warrior feathers. But that is something I would encourage you to do. Recognize the boundary between what you're doing at work or what you're doing to help other people and try to keep that boundary at work and not at home. Now, we have an extra problem here lately with COVID and all this pandemic stuff. A lot of social workers, mental health workers are working from their home. They're doing telehealth. They're doing phone therapy. And the things that they deal with are intruding on their home life. So try to keep that in mind that it's bleeding onto your time at home. It's ble- you're sitting there at your dining room table doing trauma work. 
um, see if you can isolate that and close it up when you're done and try not to have it intrude on every single area of your life. And I'm absolutely recognizing that is difficult in this day and age right now with all this telehealth stuff. So try to have your keep it at work separate from what you take home mode. The other thing is getting help. I um, have had more clients in the last, probably the last year, not even longer than that, who are coming from other agencies. Because I'm a therapist that tend to help other therapists and people in the, the, our profession, I've had people come to me to say, I want to come on a regular basis and process the traumas I'm dealing with for two reasons. I want to staff the cases with you and get your input, and I want to dump the cases so that I'm not carrying them in my psyche, both of which are wonderful and not something I have seen in the course of the history of dealing with this profession. So a support group, an outlet, somebody's listen when you have a horrendous case, and somebody who knows how to bring that out of you. Like one of the things I will ask a therapist coming to talk to me about a particularly horrible case they're dealing with is what part of the case do you find yourself ruminating about? And it isn't always necessarily what you think it would be. It's not always the blood and guts part. Sometimes it's the little things, the, um, the, the things you can't really put your finger on unless you're that person. So in your support groups with each other, with your staffing cases with other members of your agency or your boss, your supervisor, or you're going to a therapist who can listen and help you process the trauma, the secondary trauma that you have, Look for what it is you're ruminating about. What are the visuals that you're holding on to? What is the one sentence that that kid said? What's the one thing that you visualize and see? I mean, even as I'm saying this to you guys, I'm thinking of stuff I've held on to over 34 years that I won't even tell you about because I don't want to give you trauma of the things that were traumatic for me to listen to from people. I just work on them and, and process them. So doing some critical instance stress debriefing, getting support and talking to your boss and your coworkers and helping each other. A long time ago, we used to um, use a lot of inappropriate humor. If anybody ever listened to the stuff we talked about at CPS, we would joke around about and the dark humor we would do and the horrible things we'd say. It was a comic relief sort of thing. And they would have thought we were so callous. No, we were trying to dump the burden of the trauma that we witnessed. And one of the ways we did it was by almost joking around about it in in this morbid, sarcastic kind of way. We were trying to say, hey, this affected me, but I'm laughing about it. And we never laughed at what happened to the victims. We were laughing about our own response to things. So that is not necessarily what we need to do. Um, it was all we had back then. Now we can have something a little more clear and a little more healthy, all right, to be more straight up with it. So I also want you to know when your resiliency begins to wane, when you have felt strong and compassionate and you're doing a really good job dealing with trauma and you're doing a good job leaving it at work, when that starts to dissipate and you're having more trouble holding your boundary in your head or in your actual life, especially with doing telehealth and everything from home now, that when that begins to wane, your resiliency is waning, your compassion begins to wane. And with those, the ability 
to help others diminishes because we begin to go into the signs of burnout. We're tired. You can't concentrate. You can't make yourself care about a case or about seeing that person or you start to dread that person coming in for their appointment uh, or you, somebody says, hey, can you take on another rape victim? And part of you goes, oh, no, not another rape victim. That's when your compassion and your resiliency is beginning to wane. Now, the other thing is sometimes you dig deep. There are really strong people in the helping professions, super strong people. And they will not let that compassion or that ability to do therapy or help or be the social worker that helps the abused kids or goes out to the homes or the first responders. But things like your paperwork, your files will become disorganized. You won't care. In fact, I can't tell you how often people have said to me, I just don't care about my paperwork anymore. Oh, I feel like I'm constantly behind. And I feel like I'm in trouble at work all the time because I'm just not doing the busy work, the paperwork, the T-crossing, I-dotting stuff stuff that I don't care about. That's part of that compassion burnout. Because you're spending so much energy actually helping the victims of the trauma to muster up some more energy to do the file, to do the paperwork, to file the billing, to do the process notes, whatever, becomes very difficult because you just don't have enough dig deep. And I mean that. Sometimes helping professionals have to dig deep to deal with one more trauma victim or one more car accident or one more uh, emergency room trauma. They have to dig deep. And so to dig deep to do the nasty paperwork stuff just isn't there. And so that is a red flag when you don't feel like you can do your job as effectively. And it isn't even touching the clients yet. It's touching the other stuff around your job. Short-tempered with your boss, with your coworkers, not caring if you're late to work, trying to leave early. You just want out. You're just burned out. Those are all signs of compassion fatigue. Those are signs of secondary traumatic stress. And the way to help yourself is to recognize all those things. One of the most important things for dealing in the helping professional jobs is to have other things in your life that take your attention. And I don't mean just gotta do's. I mean wanna do's. Um, Say you're a runner and you do marathons. So you're working on a marathon. Say you play a musical instrument. You actually let yourself play. You sign up for lessons to further your what you're doing. You join a musical group. You, You do some things that you can't think about work when you're doing. My definition of a stress release is something that you do that you cannot think of anything else while you're doing it. For many years, I coached clogging. I had three exhibition teams. I taught clogging, and we uh, did competitions. My junior teams were national champions. My daughters were national champions. Um, So we lived and breathed clogging. My husband, Rich, and I coached it and taught it. And that was a huge stress release. For him as an attorney, he had a caseload of thousands of abused children over 30 years. And for me as a Children's Protective Services worker and as a therapist, coaching clogging 
mega involved in that, doing our exhibition teams, dancing ourselves, doing competitions, kept us from thinking about work. Because when you're dancing, when you're thinking of stuff like that, you can't think of work and trauma. So I hope this has explained to you what secondary traumatic stress disorder is, what compassion fatigue is, what you might be experiencing that you've just said, God, I feel so burned out. I want you to look deeper, go further, get some help, organize some stuff at your work to try and make that happen. Okay, so I hope this has been some help for you today um, because it's important. Because when we keep our first responders and our helping professionals healthy, then we have a team of people to help those that are going through trauma. This is Dr. Patricia Bay, Dr. Patty, and you've been listening to Therapy in a Nutshell, where I just want to help heal the world one hour at a time. The news from Town Hall is brought to you on KCNR Shasta Reading by Shasta Regional Medical Center. Your life, your health, your choice. Shasta Regional Medical Center.